Welcome to episode 145 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Happy Leap Day as we record this, slash Happy March as it publishes. How are you, Courtney? I'm doing well. Happy Leap Day to you as well, Ben. Happy 30 Rock Day. Unofficial 30 Rock Day, right? We were saying that. Like, I feel like, you know, Star Wars fans have adopted May the 4th. Like, you know, May the 4th be with you <laughs> as their day. They're, and 30 Rock fans, I think, first of all, can't settle for one day every four years. <laughs> and, and and should take it as Leap Day because they have an amazing Leap Day episode with Leap Day William. This whole completely made up mythology about the holiday. It's great. <laughs> I wore my blue and yellow. It took me a while to find blue and yellow clothing, actually, that would work, even though I went to Michigan. Like every, I was going to say, you went to Michigan. I know. All my Michigan stuff was dirty. Um, but I did it, and I was out in the world proudly, and nobody knew what I was doing or was doing similarly that I saw. So, oh, well, we'll make it, try to make it happen uh, next time. I think maybe maybe it needs a little more. I think nostalgia has a bit of an incubation time, right? And it's, yes. it is a nostalgia well, thing. It is a, a nostalgia thing, but also we have to stop and recognize that that no one watched Thirty Rock. No, one. especially not <laughs> it, like it, season six. Season six is not a great season. Yeah, that that's a deep dive once you get into season six. But it, it's so funny because I was looking back at very short aside, but I was obviously people know I rewatch television shows, so I was going back and I was looking at um, the ratings for Alias back during its peak years because I just remember constantly being scared that alias was going to get canceled um not unlike x-files um and when you go back and you look at the ratings numbers back at what before online streaming kind of happened like if alias was pulling in the numbers today that it pulled in back then when it was constantly on the chopping block it was like right around what the first couple seasons of scandal were yeah like Like, I, i was looking at the numbers for i think it was american idol this year are incredibly low yeah i realize that's like a very has been show but yeah, nobody watches TV anymore. Everybody's no. everybody's on Netflix and chilling. That's what I do. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's it's definitely interesting. So all that is to, is to say, Thirty Rock's numbers were really low anyway, and they're like even the more spectacularly low, like in the the world of online streaming. But it's a great show. Everyone should watch it. Then you would understand more of our inside jokes. Speaking of things that got really high ratings, can we go to the Doha final between Carlos Suarez Navarro <laughs> and Elena Ostapenko? <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I'm sure was a blockbuster in every sense of that word. Another surprise WTA result, fair to say. Uh, Carlos is obviously a top 10 player and moves up to a career high and, you know, made Australian open quarters and everything. Ostapenko barely got into the main draw. And I think it's a little hard to see because Doha is a kind of off-peak tournament. But, like, in terms of level of sanction given by the WTA, this is a tournament on par with Rome, with Cincinnati, with Canada. It's a Premier Five. So it's a big event that Elena Ostapenko and Carlos Suarez Navarro met in the final of. Uh, Courtney, what did you make of that whole tournament, how it ended, this sort of, and the sort of end of this weird no man's land or no woman's land month of February for the WTA, where a lot of uh, sort of more middle tier players in terms of how we think about the contenders for these big titles were racking up titles? Yeah, I mean, it, it wraps up, you know, obviously the, the Middle Eastern swing. I think that, you know, for a player like Carla Suarez Navarro, I think I think it's a mass. I mean, obviously, it's a massive title for her. But just even in kind of the abstract, it's a massive week for her just to be able to, you know, as everybody's kind of uh, uh, suffering from upsets around her for her to able to be able to stand tall and to get 
you know, business done um, was was pretty impressive. It wasn't like the most crazy draw of players that she had to go through as a result of, of a lot of the upsets. But she but crushed Redvanska. She God. crushed Redvanska. Exactly. I mean, I think that that was a pretty impressive win from from Carlos Suarez Navarro, particularly because she she lost to her in straight sets at the uh, in the quarterfinals of the Aussies. So, you know, got to avenge that loss and just slowly but surely, you know, she she's just plugging away and doing her thing. And I wondered a little bit. It's kind of a theory that I'm, I'm that's percolating in my head a little bit, and I don't know where I stand on it. But I was like, I wonder if 2016 is going to be for Carla what 2015 was for Kerber. Insofar mm-hmm. as, you know, Carla went through last year, had a pretty consistent season up until about midway and then kind of fell off, uh, made three big finals in Miami and uh, Rome and Antwerp, lost all three of those finals, um, finished outside of the top 10, was incredibly disappointed to do that. It had a horrible, it, had a horrible second half of the year. More oh, terrible. Yeah. Absolutely really terrible. Really, it was. Streak. Yeah. Yeah. And it was that loss to Ostapenko at Wimbledon, Wimbledon yeah. that really kind killed. of kicked it off. That killed. match was. I mean, she was. That was one of the worst matches by a top player all year. Yeah, that match because she just. And I think she'll, she'll she admitted it. She, she, admitted, she, she yeah, talked exactly. about it in Brisbane. I remember just that it was sort of a turning point match that she just wasn't able to get up for it at all. I mean, she's not a great grass quarter, but she did has made I think second week Wimbledon or at least third round a couple times. So she's not yeah. incapable. Um, and let's talk about Ostapenko though, because a lot of people probably hadn't heard of Ostapenko, or if they did, all they ever heard about her was that she hit the ball boy with a racket. Um, <laughs> as Naomi Brody would tell you, uh, what, what, and she's a junior champion of Wimbledon herself. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Yes. So, uh, she, this is the biggest final of a tournament ever made by a Latvian bigger than any of Ernie's. <laughs> I was going to say the whole time I was like, Ernie could never, Ernie. um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, with Yelena Ostapenko, if you listen to the WTA Insider podcast, you will know the name Yelena Ostapenko because she has been discussed pretty extensively throughout the year. But, uh, yeah, she. I thought it was just a really impressive week from her. Um, beat Petra Kvitova, um, you know, uh, really rallied to come back, even though Petkovic got hurt. But uh, but just played well um, in that semifinal and in the final as well. You know, blasted Carla off the court, take the first set six one, um, and really, you know, it forced Carla Suarez Navarro to elevate her game um, and to kind of withstand the offensive onslaught from Ostapenko. And that's something that. I thought was really impressive because I haven't I've seen bits and pieces of Ostapenko. I haven't seen her, you know, in a, a single week against pretty good competition being asked to play her best. And and I was imp- just really impressed by how hard she hits the ball for a player who isn't like a six foot two banger, like a like a Muguruza. Um, that ball just really flies off her racket. It's a very clean motion. Everything. Yeah. Technically yeah. Really good. And all the players were really they 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 kind of sat up and take and took notice last week. So, you know that was impressive. She actually leapfrogs Daria Kashatkina, uh, uh, in terms of the 18 year old sweepstakes mm. is now the second ranked, uh, second highest ranked 18 year old. Three 18 year olds in the top 50 now with Benchich and Kashatkina and Ostapenko, and uh, first time that's happened since April 2009 when it was Wozniacki, Pavlyuchenkova, and Kirstea. So is, there's your stat. Is Benchich still 18? My God. She's still 18. Can you believe it? Good Lord. I know. And it's great, too, because um, I tweeted this uh, from the Insider account over the weekend, but I pulled up, you know, the Wikipedia entry for the the uh, Junior Grand Slam champions from 2013 and 2014. And in order, they were Anna Kanyu, uh, Belinda Benchich, Anna Kanyu, Belinda Benchich, uh, Elizaveta Kulichkova, Daria Kashatkina, and uh, Yelena Oshtapenko. 
So we're seeing that kind of generation start to move through a little bit. They're all um, doing stuff. Is, I mean, that, yeah. not not every junior champ is at all a sure thing. So that's a nice little streak of junior transition there. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. So I was impressed by Yelena Ostapenko. I was happy for Carla. We've said it before. Everybody adores her in the locker room. I mean, there's just so much respect for for her. And um, and yeah, so that's kind of the wrap on the Middle East. But, you know, definitely it's, it's hard not to walk away from it a little bit disappointed given – you know, how many players weren't able to play or, or you know, Serena didn't play, Maria didn't play. You had some top players obviously suffering early upsets left and right. So you, you never really felt like you got to see best on best, yeah. which is ideally obviously what you want to see, particularly at a Premier 5. I mean, obviously Doha and Dubai, they, they swap the Premier 5 designation every other year. But, um, you know, while we do, obviously because they're Premier 5s, put them on the level of the tournaments that you mentioned, Ben, you know, uh, Rome... Wuhan, uh, um, Canada and Cincinnati, Canada and Cincinnati, you know, we also always know that the Middle East is always a, a difficult swing to get a full slate of players in there to get full draws. So it is of, you know, those, those tournaments kind of the, the lesser, just because the, the field is always yeah. margin slightly depleted, and whether I, it's in Doha or Dubai. Yeah. And I didn't mention Wuhan. Cause I think Wuhan, yeah, cause Wuhan has, has exactly. that same sort of issue, but yeah, the other three. For sure. Uh, just speaking of the disappointments, you mentioned Kirstea earlier in passing, and it reminded me of this, you know, what I was doing, digging through the rankings of, you know, so far step this year to try to figure out exactly how bad Halep's start to the year had been. And she is ranked 77th in the race. I realize it's only end of February, but still, she's played a, se- a lot of tournaments to get that data set. 77 behind Kirstea in the race and <laughs> which is just not that's not something to be proud of at this point how big are the concerns for her going into uh she was defending champ in D- dubai she's defending title in indy wells coming up uh semi of miami coming up it's just got a lot of points on the line coming up and it's uh yeah i don't know what, what exactly is she, is she be bracing herself for more pain or do you see any signs from her that that she's going to pull out of this tailspin because it's been a really rough start to 2016 for her. Yeah, I mean, I I, I am very much, and um, David Kane and I talked about this a lot in this week's Insider podcast, but um, I'm very much in a wait and see through India Wells of Miami on a, on a, a bunch of players, practically the entire top 20, honestly, um, simply because, you know, when you look in the back, in like a lot of these players that are slumping right now that have started 2016 not great, You've also seen instances in the past where they've been able to reverse their nosedive fairly quickly. And I and, and the one of the players that I do think that is capable of that is Halep, simply because we saw this last year. She went through that terrible stretch, Roland Garros and the grass, terrible losses, like was completely shattered and disappointed by all that. And then she takes the court in, in North America and she does great, right? Makes the, the what is it, back, what was it, back-to-back finals? In Toronto and Cincinnati, and then makes the quarterfinals uh, at the U.S. Open. Semi, that yeah. was or semi, sorry, that was completely unexpected in my book. I, I never would have thought that that she was capable of that. I was I was very much of the oh, it's going to be a while. Simona's going to have to kind of write this section of the season off. So it could very well be that she shows up in India Wells and completely reverses things because so long as she's healthy, I think that's the biggest thing. But at the same time, she could also lose, you know, second round. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, and I, I would say. You know, I, 
the same for I mean less so. I mean I thought that there were some positives from from Muguruza definitely um, definitely in in Doha. So I thought she played a little bit better. Kerber, I don't th- I I don't put a lot of stock in her first round loss in Doha. I think she'll be better when she gets to Indian Wells. So Aga, I think, is still playing good tennis. Um, you know, so there's there's a lot of question marks in that top top ten. But I think I'll evaluate a little bit more, like kind of who is in a disastrous slump and who isn't. Like maybe after Indian Wells, but definitely after Miami. Yeah, I think if if Halep loses early in Indian Wells, obviously you get the chance to redo it all in Miami. But that would be if early loss in Indian Wells, where the conditions are great for her, where she's defending champion. That would be a sign that things that something's not something's just been off all year. And because I mean the losses she's taking are not good losses. No, and, I agree. And so, yeah, for someone who was, you know, very recently number two, considered by many, you know, the next likely slam breakthrough player to have this much downward momentum uh, at a part of the year that shouldn't have been bad for her is uh, concerning. Yeah. And if people want to, if you want like a full deep dive on Simona Halep, uh, yeah, David Kane and I talked about her extensively in last week's WTA Insider podcast. So you can download that and get more thoughts. I didn't want to burn like 30 minutes of time talking about Simona here. But um, but yeah, we burned a lot of time talking about Simona there. Yeah, for all, obviously, as the plugs tell you, listen to W Insider. It is awesome. Good stuff. <laughs> Enjoy it. Complimentary with an E listening to Aww, NCR. Thanks. Other WTA adventures wrap up the women was in Acapulco this week, where Sloane Stevens improved to 3-0 in tour finals, winning in a third set tiebreak. Very good final against... Dominica Sibilkova. Uh Courtney, how seriously should we take Sloan as someone to make a move back to the direction, the territory, the rankings where she was headed uh, in 2013? Gosh, just a while ago now. Um, when she made, you know, up to number 11. It was an alternate in Istanbul back when the finals were there. Uh, slam semi. I mean, are those things that are achievable for her in the WTA this year, especially, I guess, with the relative uncertainty of a lot of the top right now, a lot of fluidity, it seems like. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, you know, you never know with Sloan. Um, you know, I think that we've, we've seen that before, obviously. I mean, she lost first round to Kang Wang uh, at the Australian Open. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, since she started winning titles, she hasn't won a slam match. Yeah, but it's, it's, I can totally, like, picture Sloan kind of saying, you know, like, when I was making second weeks all the time, you guys were ripping on me because yep. I couldn't win titles. Now I'm winning titles and you're ripping on me because I can't win, you know, like, yep. and fair enough. I mean, that is exactly kind of uh, the tendency. I think that people just want, you know, to see some some level of consistency. But again, a player that that I'll obviously be keeping an eye on through Indian Wells and Miami. I mean, we know how well she plays. And, you know, in, in a lot of times where she hasn't gone deep at big tournaments, this Australian Open doesn't count. But a lot of times she is running up against Serena or like a top player yeah. fairly early. So I think, what was it, last year at the Australian Open... Was it uh, Azarenka Caroline? First. Azarenka oh, Azarenka first round. Yeah, she's run up against a lot of top players very early in the draws. So, but you know, the thing that gives you so much, or at least gives me so much confidence in Sloan these days, like 2016 Sloan, is seriously if you pull up that third set of the Acapulco final, just watch her. Um, she wasn't playing her best tennis. I think that court surface was weird. It looked really slow to me. Uh, but I could be wrong, but she wasn't playing at her best. Um, there were times where she was still a little bit too passive. She could have gone for a little bit more and, and kept uh, Dominica on her back, uh, on her heels a little bit, but she fought incredibly well. And again, that's something that has been a big knock against Sloane Stevens mm-hmm. for, a, for a long time is her 
seemingly uh, her penchant for kind of going on a walkabout at the end of matches, the, the lack of belief, the lack of, of, of um, competitive fire. Yeah, at least a competitive going, fire. At least like going all in, you know? Yeah, and, or at least a competitive fire that we could see. You know, I always want to differentiate that. I mean, she could be incredibly competitive, but maybe she just bottles it in. I don't know. But at least, like, we've never seen it consistently from her. That final set against Sabokova, she absolutely showed it. There were fist pumps, there were screams, and she was intense and calm. It was great to see. And I think that that is really something that Nick Saviano kind of has helped kind of sow those seeds last year. I think that under Kamau Murray, I think they're they're working, obviously, together incredibly well. But that it's not about the titles and the wins necessarily for me. It's just like the way she's playing. I thought that that was, that was really great. And I think that that's a lot of momentum to take into Indian Wells. No shout out to Kamau. I mean, they've played three tournaments together with what well, Sloan's played three tournaments only under Kamau and won two of them. So that's pretty good batting average. That ain't bad. That's pretty good. Keep that up. You'll, you'll go places. Uh, the, men in Acapulco were won by Dominic team one beat over, Bernard Tomic in the final, nice little sort of young gunsy final of generation next. Again, I'm not sure. I think all the things we said about team before sort of hold, he, it was good for him to win a hardcore title. That was a step for sure in his first 500 title. Uh, he didn't beat anybody necessarily who was a surprise that you wouldn't expect him to beat. But um, with K. Did he beat Grigor? Or am I wrong? Who beat Grigor? Um, Sorry. Is Grigor a scowl? Well, I mean, it's seven five six two. He beat Grigor. Jesus, that doesn't surprise me. No, it doesn't surprise me. But I mean, like, it, it's still a good win. I mean, Grigor's not terrible. No, at I tennis. mean, it was just a, not like you know. It was a solid five hundred level draw that he made it through. He beat Query, who's been playing yeah. really well in the semis. Query beat Kane Shikori, which is a pretty sizable upset, I think, and that made me sort of take notice of Query after not taking a ton of notice necessarily of him winning uh, Delray. Uh, that's a very nice win, and then Query had a tough win over Taylor Fritz as well. So that was a pretty solid. Uh, semi for team beating query two and two maybe queries out of gas at that point um yeah then team and tomic play a very tough three set final at team wins i mean he's setting up well to be somebody who as maybe some space opens up at the atp you know i mean rafa to bring him up even though he didn't play this week he's not looking like he's going to be uh the dominant force on clay that he was in the past this year at least from far out right now months out it looks like that so team can maybe make some moves there do do well at some clay masters and Indian Wells should be good for him. He likes a slow high bouncing court. That all sh- should all be in his favor. Yeah. Team, I think put himself a little more on the radar and otherwise in terms of one headed backhands, it was a good week for them on the ATP with Stan Vavrinka winning in Dubai, uh, beating Marcos Baghdadis in the final, a very resurgent, newly dedicated fit looking Marcos Baghdadis, which is great to see uh, after a very, did you watch any of the, the curious Vavrinka rematch Courtney? I did not. I, I think I think I had kind of previewed that one for you, like when we were texting the night before, where I was just like, it's not going to be a match. I knew it's it wasn't going to be. I knew it was like everything about it was conspiring. to. I knew it would be like lackluster. There wouldn't be, you know, pulling out all the insults that we would hope for them to do. Well, not even that, but just that Kyrgios was already dealing with physical issues. You know, the match before when he was playing Burdick, obviously went on to beat Burdick. But uh, I just was like, no, not on. If you don't have a full tank of gas, if your body's not feeling it, there's no way he's going to make a match of that. And sure enough, it, it just yeah. was a uh, a dud. And he brought he brought stand down to his level for a bit in the first set. It wasn't great. So yeah, so Vavrinka got through Kyrgios in an uneventful rematch. Uh, wins there, setting up nicely. He doesn't never does well in Indian Wells, really. Vavrinka, 
So wouldn't expect him to do much there. Or Miami, I don't think he's really done much either. Not a great time of year for him. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, he's still a player who plays tennis. The other thing that happened that let, I wouldn't say let, but that cleared the path for Vavrinka to to win Dubai was that Novak Djokovic did not win Dubai, which is pretty shocking because <laughs> he does not win tournaments much at all. Uh, it was very extenuating circumstances. After winning his first two rounds very easily, uh, Djokovic won and two over Robredo and then won and two over Jaziri. He retired in after the first set of his quarterfinal against Feliciano Lopez with some sort of eye infection, a contact lens issue. Courtney, do you wear contacts sometimes? Um, I have contacts. I I only wear them when I play sports. Okay. So, yeah, so you can uh, relate to maybe Chuck's oh, sure. pain here. And it was frustrating, you know, having his streak of, I think, 17 straight finals that he was going for, or 18. He was going for a record-tying thing with Lendl, longest streak of finals at all levels of tours ever. Um, men's side at least uh, get derailed like that so that was anti-climax bummer and he got booed going off court but that was so brutal like what the hell is that about I mean come on these ugh. yeah no I just it was incredibly disappointing to see the crowd react that way I mean the guy was clearly like you know not fit enough to play I mean if you can't see the freaking ball then that is what happens now that being said you know it does bring up the kind of debate topic, I suppose, or discussion topic of, of how much and what do you as an announcer or a, a, a on-court umpire tell the crowd yeah, when I a agree. player retires? Because sometimes it, I mean, it very easily could have looked like Novak lost the first set and he was like, peace, you know, in which case I guess I understand booing maybe. Yeah. If you're like, so, if you're just like but talking, I don't know yeah, if you're like if from, from the stands, you can't see medical timeouts all that well. Um, you know, especially if you're just like spending the changeover talking to your friends who you're with because you haven't you can't talk during the match or whatever. So, you know, people don't always pay close attention to medical timeouts in stadium. And yeah, you were excited to see Djokovic and you don't get a whole match. I understand it on a basic fan instinct to feel disappointed that somebody pulled out. I mean, I remember I think I've told this story before, but it sort of put it more in context for me of, you know, I get I watch so much tennis that I get jaded to individual matches, you know, being torpedoed. But my dad, I think, came to Cincinnati one year. The first year I was there, and there was a semifinal of Ivanovic Kleisters, and and Ivanovic like rolled her ankle in like the second or third game of the match and retired. And it was like there was then there was that was it. It was over after yeah. like less three games at most. And it was just like, well, that sucked. Oh, was it the foot? It was like, it was an, like ankle. an ankle. It was, foot? It was an ankle yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. It was just like it wasn't a major injury. It wasn't like she was out for the U.S. Open or anything, but it was she stopped that day, especially with the U.S. Open coming up, and you know. And he's like, well, that's the end of – it was a single-session ticket, I think, at that point because it was when Cincinnati was women only for, for, you know, women, one-week women, one-week men. So, yeah, I mean, it can be – as a fan, I think we have to be sympathetic to that experience on some level that might be the only time of year that you get to see tennis. And if you get 50% of what you thought you were going to get, it can be disappointing. I mean, most – most you would never see a soccer game that never – that just didn't have a second set – a second second half. Right. Right. And, you know, I mean, I, I think, like I said, I understand the psychology behind it. It doesn't mean that, like, I think it's OK. Like, I, I almost like it's it, if you're a fan, hold up a sign that says boo, not you, Novak, but boo like tournament or boo circumstances or boo like whatever. But you don't know how existential the booing was. <laughs> I don't. But I'm saying that if it's that, if, it, if it's like you're not pissed at the player, but like you're pl- you're just pissed at your situation that you paid you know, a hundred bucks for a ticket and you only got $50 worth of, of, of value. I understand that from a, from a purely psychological perspective being pissed, 
but you know like chill yeah (laughs) fair i say so while those top guys were in dubai roger federer normally in dubai was not in dubai he was in los angeles namely on the red carpet of the oscars doing a shot of tequila with some i believe (laughs) mexican like broadcaster who pulled him aside for an interview which just a tremendous moment for everyone involved uh Serena Williams and Maria Sharapova showed up later, I think, for after parties at the Oscars. I'm not sure if they were at the main ceremony or not, but Roger definitely was. Uh, Courtney, what do you make of tennis being at the Oscars, first of all? And then we can go broader into Oscars in general and whatever way you want to take that. Because I know we talk about the Oscars every year. We'll come back <laughs> to some more sporty stuff in a second, but go wherever you want with this. No, I mean, I, I think it's great. I mean, I, I love that that Roger and because Maria and Serena have gone to the Vandy Fair party I think almost like maybe not every year, but almost every year. Definitely Maria. I mean, it helps that they're both, you know, L.A. based. So that makes a big difference. Um, And it's also if they don't play the Middle East, then they're there um, to go to that. So I love it just because I think that it's always a great reminder that we do have these two stars that that transcend the sport and that are, you know, get invited to the Vanity Fair party. Um, And I thought they both looked fantastic. Um, So and it led to a bunch of like fun weird pictures like oh here's a picture of maria sharapova and caitlin jenner here's a picture of maria sharapova palling around with elizabeth banks here's serena williams and jennifer garner it was crazy i was like what <laughs> so from just a personal like and like if you like celebrity and hollywood and all that it, it's kind of cool and i again it's a way for people to just be you know reminded that tennis exists you right um which is great and uh my favorite yeah. celebrity picture by the way was Aubrey Plaza and Federer I and know she looks so happy she looks so happy and she never I mean, looked happy no Aubrey Plaza never smiles her twitter handle is evil hag I mean you know um and I love her but yeah no so that was great and I and it was cool to get like that little viral moment of Roger doing a shot of tequila I thought that that was pretty smart no lime no salt I mean straight up but it looked like it uh it burned a little going down um but yeah, so that was great and and definitely at least kind of unexpected, I guess, for me. I, I didn't know that Roger was going until he tweeted out his uh, his little emoji Twitter. Um, and then Serena and Marie, I didn't know either until it was like, oh, they're getting ready for the Vanity Fair party. That's great. But it was otherwise capped off what was a very unexpected and for the most part, pleasantly so, uh, night at the Oscars. I mean, it, it, it almost capped off, you know, what was February in tennis like that whole vibe of crazy shit happening, like infected the Oscars. And and it was fun. I liked it. Yeah, Oscars itself, I think, well, I mean, a lot of the, I think a lot of the Chris Rock stuff was obviously the whole pretext of the Oscars, you know, race, the the very whitewashed nominee list uh, was there. I think some of the, a lot, a lot of the later stuff was fairly clunky he did I, I loved the uh the video of whoopi and with leslie jones oh, that was, was tremendous that was the best part like if it had just been that it would have been like <laughs> i'm a danish girl, <laughs> girl. <laughs> anything that involves tracy morgan i'm down with i'm down I'm, yeah. i will sign on to that in a heartbeat but that part of it was awesome some of the other stuff like all the asian stuff i thought was pretty ridiculous and terrible um but yeah oscars were good i love spotlight i rented i think i raised about spotlight on the show back when i saw did, it yeah. in the fall so good to see it win uh yeah Good stuff for, I think, pretty much every category minus Inuritu winning. I just think that I, I didn't see Revenant. Don't plan to. It just looks deeply unpleasant. And it's for him to win back-to-back Oscars. Uh, for I, Granted, it's impressive that he made two very different movies back-to-back years. It looks like both very high, you know, difficulty-level movies. So if that's what they want to reward, fine. But just not my 
cup of tea at yeah. all. Either. I mean, I, I can't remember if I like ranted about The Revenant. I probably didn't. I don't or think maybe, so. I think I probably ranted about Inuritu last year because I, I had major issues with Birdman which was the the big winner last year and which uh, Inuitu won uh, Best Director for. And I I used to love his movies. Amoris Peros is like a fantastic film. I love it. It's, it's great. If you haven't seen it, go back and watch it. But these last two movies have just been a... I mean, I <laughs> every analogy that's coming to my mind is like not appropriate for me to say out loud, but it's they're they're just big like splatters of ego on screen. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just his ego getting in the way of like storytelling, which I you know I feel like directors should be servicing the story and servicing the fan and doing what is you know the best to to you know tell that story. And it's not like Birdman or The Revenant are terrible movies. They're perfectly fine movies. They are better movies than a lot of the other schlock that's out there. But I just hate that he keeps getting rewarded for what is, 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 as Devin Fracci wrote on um, Birth, Movies, and Death, um, uh, like jackass movie making. Like you do it because like you can. Like let's see, like let's have Leo eat like a bison liver, a raw bison liver, because it's more authentic no one gives a shit that it's like it's only authentic because you then tell everybody that 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 it was a raw bison liver but if that was like you know i don't know jello like and but it looked real and whatever like no one in the audience would care and it would not like not it wouldn't like undermine the story it's like little things like that where he just does things where i'm like you didn't need to do that and you're only doing it to show everybody how amazing you are and that's when i automatically like check out of a movie so i was so happy that revenant didn't win best movie i was annoyed that inuri to won best director but if it had to be one of the two i'd rather like inuri to win director and revenant not win best movie but aside from that like i mean i loved everything that mad max got i loved all the recognition it got yeah that stretch in the middle where it won like six out of seven in a row or something was awesome yeah it only lost cinematography i think uh to revenant in that in that stretch but it walked away as the big winner of the night six six academy awards so many badass women involved in the making of that movie and they won um and it wasn't even just for like you know quote unquote you know women dominated things like costume design or things like that although there was a great moment with the costume designer walking down the the aisle passing to read to that was hilarious but um best editing which is editing is typically a male dominated field and it was george miller's wife uh margaret sixel who won and if you do any Googling, if you do any reading about like what made Mad Max so good, so much of it comes down to the editing and what she did, which is like exactly what I want to see in movies, which is like to actually center the action. If you guys watch like James Bond or like Mission Impossible or any other like action movie, anything James Bay, like when people fight or whatever, it's like really jarring. Like the camera's shaking and you kind of it's like chaos, like and it's intentional chaos. Like you don't really know what's going on and in Mad Max all of the action is actually dead center in the frame so your eyes don't actually move so what even though it's cutting from scene from a sh a camera shot to camera shot it's con it's consistent and it it you uh, you see exactly what's happening and that's all Margaret Sixel and George Miller and um and stuff like that so i thought that was really wonderful and then yeah much love for spotlight brie larson fantastic 
Leo, whatever. I don't get, I just do not get Leo DiCaprio at all. I don't know why people like him. I don't think that he's that great of an actor, but whatever. If people want to give like, ooh, he's suffered so much, he's due. He's 41 freaking years old, dude. Like, Ennio Morricone, who's contributed so much more to film and to music and whatever, was like, what, like 92? And he just won his first Academy Award last night for soundtrack or um, score for original score for Hateful Eight. And, like, that's been long overdue. And that dude could, like, barely walk to the stage. And, like, because he's so, like, you know, old. And, like, everybody's like, oh, but Leo, he's just really due. He's 41. Yeah. And he looks 12. And he bangs supermodels. Like, his life will be just fine if he never won an Oscar. I'm sorry. Oscar narrative happens all the time to try to put importance on it. The same thing happened with with Sandra Bullock, with Julianne Moore, with uh, Julia Roberts, probably. Like, oh, they've just been waiting for so long. They just, just, I mean, like... And I guess maybe we do this in sports too, somewhat of like this person to do, but I feel like it's oh, totally we do. But but at that point, and this is why I thought it was interesting that Federer was there and rooting for DiCaprio. Like a like the like Federer <laughs> if Federer won Federer if it was if this was a popularity contest tennis, yeah, like Federer would win more slams. Or if it was like, oh, but he's really due, like he's put in a nice body of work and he he ate a liver and you know, did shot of tequila. I don't know what the I'm losing the analogy a bit here, but <laughs> you know what I mean? If uh, if that was the way it works and the uh, award shows get to be more contrived in sports, which is authentic and I think better off for that because I don't know, it's it's just more of a meritocracy purely. Not saying that I I haven't seen Revenant, don't want to, won't see it, but uh yeah. And I don't know if there's anybody better in that category necessarily. For best actor? Yeah, probably not. I mean, it was a pretty weak category, um, which says a lot because honestly, if Michael Michael B. Jordan really should have been nominated yeah. in there for Creed yeah. and like and he would have been a legit like you should act, like if you if you gave it to DiCaprio over Michael B. Jordan, if he was nominated, like that would have been just a disaster uh, because Michael B. Jordan is so good in Creed. Um but yeah, I mean, even Bridge of Spies got some love with Mark Rylance, which was like a perfectly fine, good Spielbergy Tom Hanks movie. Um, he was good cool in it. I mean, like he was, it. If anybody was going to get an award for Bridge of Spies, I'm glad it was him. Yes, agreed. Agreed. So, and I haven't seen Trumbo, so I don't know what the whole deal was with Brian Cranston. But yeah. Speaking of that category to round out, we haven't mentioned Steve Jobs' movie was Fastbender, <laughs> which I just hated so much. I'm glad to see that get shut out at the Oscars. Um, and also, we should mention. Uh, yes. Eddie Redmayne was in there, which is by someone maybe listening now. Uh, the book of that was by David Eberzoff, who wrote the book of Danish Girl as one of our Kickstarter backers. So that's very exciting. That's right. And CR getting like one degree of separation from the Oscars. And Alicia Vikander did win Best Supporting Actress yes. for her role in The Danish Girl. I mean, she, she got an award. The Danish Girl, you know, uh, did well on that end. So mm-hmm. congratulations to David Ebershoff and we look forward to uh, to working with him to guest edit a uh, an episode of NCR soon. We're we're pretty stoked about that. It's pretty cool. So after the Oscars and all of that stuff, Courtney, you tweeted out and then directed me to listen to a podcast segment from an ESPN podcast of the Will and Kate Show, which is sort of an eye rolling name. I don't know if it's intentional. I don't know if they were paired together because. They have matching names you can make a title out of. It's like British royalty-ish. Um, <laughs> anyway, Will Kane, Kate Fagan talking about women's sports on ESPN. And I guess why people don't talk about women's sports on ESPN. And it got sort of weirdly meta at some points, I guess, on that front. Um, and we obviously talk about women's sports all the time on our show. So what do you make of that? And I guess tee up their conversation and we'll go where we will with it. 
Sure. Yeah. So, so uh, Kate Fagan, who I love, she she's a, a writer for ESPN and ESPNW, um, former uh, collegiate basketball player, um, incredibly smart, great writer. Um, yeah, she has this new podcast with Will Kane um, on ESPN. They're only this is just their third episode was this week, so it's it's fairly new. And Kate Fagan also does a great podcast actually called The Trifecta, um, along with uh, Jane McManus and. Um, Sarah Spain, I think, are the are the three uh, okay. sports writers there, which is which is really great, and people should listen to that. But so it was interesting. I just happened to click on this um, this podcast because there was a segment on it uh, to discuss why women's sports lack popularity, specifically in America. So, um, which is a topic that is obviously very close to my heart, as it is basically my job um, uh, at the WTA. So, um, so their conversation was interesting. There were there are definitely moments of me being incredibly angry at some of the things that are being said and moments where I'm nodding quite a bit, which is kind of your perfect, I think, sports radio segment in a lot of ways. Um, it was very, it was, it was a very sports radio like tone of this normally not very sports radio topic. Right. Yeah. So, so basically, you know, Kate Fagan was basically kind of, uh, you know, they posed the question, why don't people watch women's sports? Uh, they took some calls, there are a lot of things. It's hard to kind of parse out and and keep simple what some of the points were that were being thrown out there. But they, they addressed one topic, which I think we've discussed before on this podcast, which is this argument that people say, you know, and, and we can take this within tennis. People say, I don't watch the WTA. And why don't you watch the WTA? Well, because I want to see people who are the best at what they do, like best in the world, compete. So male tennis players are better than 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 female tennis players so why would i watch the women play i'm only going to watch the men um so that was one argument that was thrown out there it was thrown out there repeatedly um uh by some of the callers calling in being like why would i watch it's the same reason why i don't watch you know college sports or why i don't watch arena football uh were they making does- the college sports argument on the podcast though i didn't hear that yeah, they did a little bit. I mean, well, they they used it actually to flip it to to argue. Well, no, a lot. I mean, you if that is the prevailing reason why people don't watch women's sport, how can you explain the popularity of college football? Right. And how do you explain the popularity of college basketball? Um, you know, you you can't. And and that's something obviously is a very particular thing to to the American sports landscape is is the popularity of collegiate sports. So so that I think that argument was thrown out there. It was debated. It was kind of eviscerated at different points. But one of the really interesting things that I kind of wanted to key in on with respect to to what Kate Fagan was arguing was that she she threw out a stat that I thought was pretty astounding. And I've heard it before, but I don't know, for some whatever reason today, maybe just because I was in the mood, it hit a little bit more. But she was saying that 98 percent, like some stat, 98 percent of the resources devoted to covering sports are dedicated to men's sports. Mm hmm leaving 2%. Now, how that, uh, you know, that percentage gets broken out, I don't know. But um, that was the the, the, the point. I, that I think was it was made. about like from I think from what I remember, it was about front like page? Front, front page and also like TV airtime, which includes okay. like broadcasting actual sporting events, which totally makes sense. Okay. And I'm almost a little surprised it's not higher than 98% when you yeah. think about like that every single like MLB game adds up over time. Right. And all those all the major big four men's sports leagues in the US NASCAR, rack up a lot of stuff. NASCAR, yeah. Hockey. Like but more like I'm thinking like eighty two games for each NHL team times times thirty teams, you know, would all right. add up. And hundred and sixty two games in baseball. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so that's, that's a pretty, I mean, crazy skew and, and she, you know, rightfully, uh, was kind of her initial argument was, look, if 
98% of the resources are being dedicated to covering men's sport, obviously that's going to color what you think is significant and what you think is compelling and what you think is, is, um, is interesting. Um, and then you add on to that, you know, additional layers of kind of, you know, the, the breakdown in, in gender in the press room, in the sports press room in particular, you're talking about men covering men's sports and how the language that's being used, you know, um, and, and what gets, uh, elevated as being important and what gets dismissed as being not important, um, is interesting on that point as well. And then also, you know, the discussion of, which is the thing that I really kind of agree with wholeheartedly, and which is an argument that I make all the time to people, is that people will care if you tell the story. Yeah, exactly. If you connect with a player, if you connect with the team, uh, if you have an emotional connection, then people will care. And, and the gender side of it will not matter as much. Obviously, there's always going to be like a level of sexism, but like setting even that aside, um, you know, but if 98% of the stories are stories about men and 2% of those stories are stories about women, then there are just going to be stories that never get told. And so how can you expect people to get interested in it? You know? And one of the, and, and, yeah. And one of the points that she made, I think was about the kid's soccer game. Right. I think it's a perfect analogy for this. She was talking about how like she would be invested in a sporting event, even if it was like some like eight year old, you know, soccer game, if she happened to know like the kid, like, you know, one of the kids on the field was like the child of one of her friends or something. If you have some right. sort of hook into a sporting event, and I think this sort of made me think a little bit about the sort of stories that I've done and in the past, because I think I, I do try to do stories that are more outside the box or not. I don't write a lot of stories about like, will Federer win again? Or, you know, comparing Djokovic with all time greats. I write more like Bachinsky profiles and things like that, that I think sort of hopefully add uh, more, you know, investment to people in characters that might not have otherwise cared about. And it's, and you see people doing this in, broadcasting all the time and like anytime there's a pause in the action in most sporting events i know at least like nhl does this a lot and nfl they all have long note sheets they all tell you things about these players as you're watching to get you more invested in the player themselves um and that's the human aspect of it and getting to know them the familiarity is all a big part of why you know we care about sports the actual that's why it's not fun watching people play like video game sports you know it's just like if you're watching robots that weren't real people doing the exact same things with a you know a ball and motion and all that stuff that's not anywhere near as interesting as having the depth and that's right you don't get to know people in the women's sports and this podcast kept mentioning serena williams over and over and over, over again and over and over again, because yeah. it was like the only female athlete name i feel like they felt like they could use that people would understand you know right. like they they weren't even they couldn't name and they might they brought up Ronda Rousey like a couple times, but it was just Serena over and over and over again. And that's just because the depth of women's sports awareness is so incredibly low. Whether not not maybe not definitely not among Kate Fagan, but definitely among what they think, you know, the audience is for ESPN sports radio largely, I think it's probably fair to say. And yeah. that's just that's cyclical and that's doesn't get fixed, you know. And I think also there are a bunch of other points on the on the topic about why certain sports have and where discrimination is worse. And generally, I mean, our show is, I mean, our sport is different. Tennis, obviously tennis, women's tennis is doing better than any other sport compared to the men in a, a really big sports out there. And that's, you know, relative calling tennis a really big sport, but it is a big sport. Um, it's a global sport and it does much better in large part because they are a package deal. And, um, yeah, I know. You, yeah, you're yeah. always you're always big on that, which I, I think is is probably accurate. Is that it is sold as a package deal? I think we've mentioned it before that, you know, if you're, for example, a NBA writer, 
you probably aren't asked about the WNBA and you're probably not charged with necessarily knowing the ins and outs of what's going on with the WNBA. If you're a PGA writer, you probably don't necessarily have to write about the LPGA. Um, There's a very, very strong division between those two. Within tennis, you are expected, if you are a tennis writer, to be conversant in both ATP and WTA. And not just conversant, but to be expert. I can't think of somebody who like only covers ATP. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anybody who really, and there are people who I know prefer doing ATP and resent right. having to write with the women's game. I definitely know those writers. Yes, um, yes we do. But we're and, looking at you. You know, we're talking about you too. But you're probably not listening to this podcast. Probably. So there you go. <laughs> um, and, but that is there. But yeah, but I think and they're next to each other. And I think other sports would do well to learn from that model. The one main one that I always point to is for women's college basketball. Their the March Madness overlaps. They should always have the Final Fours in the same city. Mm. I do not understand why they do that. And they they could do it even if the men get much bigger crowds they can find. And the men play in these ridiculous, like, you know, football stadium venues for the Final Four, which are awful if you're ever there. Um, but they could have the women play at a smaller venue in the same town to have all and like on alternating days and have all this press corps there ready to go. Golf is trying to do this a little bit. I started to do it a couple times. LPGA is way behind the ball on this compared to WTA. But it's having like their events go the week before, week after PGA Tour stops to get some media coverage, you know, residue there that way. And that all works. And those are things that matter. I mean, that's how you get yourself out there. I don't think going solely independent, and I guess this hurts WNBA a bit. Um, I don't know if WNBA would do, w, w, sorry, I don't know if WNBA would do better if it was simultaneous with the men or not. If it was like on off days, the women play instead of being a completely different part of the year where they're going up and going. Because that's it's, where it's a fine yeah. gap. I mean, like they were they did not go as hard as they could have. That's where the gap is just so, so massive between coverage of NBA and WNBA for products that on paper wouldn't necessarily be as different as you might think compared to they're not more different than ATP and WTA, really. Right. I mean, it's it, it's a fine balance that you have to strike, because if you straight up compete if you have straight up overlap the men are going to win every time um in terms of coverage in terms of attention and whatever so you have to choose whether or not you you strategically like leech off of the man the 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 coverage of the men um you know by by okay yeah i I like the idea of having them in the same city but you kind of like stagger you know stagger the events a little bit so that maybe one day on one day off like you're you're like the men play one day the women play another or something Mm -hmm. like that but when they go head to head uh yeah like all the writers are going to be in the other uh the main venue covering the guys oh that's exactly no that happens in tennis i remember i've talked to explicitly to writers who at wimbledon will write men only pretty much um for the first week of wimbledon and then do their like first women's story on the Tuesday when it's women's quarterfinal day and there are no men. And that's right. their only option. Because they have to fill up space. I mean, and that's the thing that, again, that, that you know, we can talk about how to fix it um, and where, you know, things should go and whether that not other sports can emulate the tennis model a little bit more. But I think that that really I think the discussion between between Kate and Will gets to more of like the why is it the way that it is? Because I think that that is so such an important question to kind of answer and to think about because I think so many people just take uh, take for granted this idea of like, well, I don't watch women's sports because like I want to watch like the best players play, 
you know, so there's that aspect, you know, and they're, they're always throwing that out there, which I just think is like the most asinine argument. Um, because when you start talking about like, yeah, like is, is one, is a woman ever going to be run, going to be able to run a 50 yard dash as fast as a man? Probably not. No. Uh, does that make the uh, watching women compete against each other to see who can run the fastest 50 yard dash? Does that make it less compelling? Absolutely not. I mean, this idea of like apples to apples comparing everything, and I think that we've mentioned this before, at least I have uh, on this podcast, of this idea of like, oh, the, you know, even if we take it within tennis, ATP and WTA, it's the same product. It's really not. Like, it's just not. The women's game is a separate thing in, in terms of like, obviously the rules are the same, but the way that the game is played is very different from the way that the, the men play their game. Yeah, tactics are so different. Tactics are so different. The psychology behind everything is so different. The personalities, obviously, as well. And that makes, you know, that makes a massive difference. It's the same as WNBA and NBA. If you're going to sit there and say, well, I don't watch the WNBA because they don't dunk. Because, like, you're like, okay, but that doesn't make it an inferior product. It just means that this thing that they don't do is a thing that you, for whatever reason, value incredibly highly that like doesn't that's just like but that it's not about better or worse you know what i mean like does that make any sense at all like what i'm trying to explain i think tennis is uh, it's interesting i think tennis and i've said this before i don't know if i'm the show but i think it's interesting to me that the sports in the u.s where women's sports are the most successful relative to the men are kind of the sports that americans are less familiar with that's relatively like tennis soccer we're not a big soccer country at all and i think the next i think probably the other only other country where i can think of where soccer is like comparably popular to the men in is uh canada where it's also not a big soccer country um and definitely not a good men's soccer country at all they haven't been in the world cup in forever if ever i'm not sure canada i don't think they ever have yeah one. not good boo canada or haha canada <laughs> whatever um <laughs> Look at me bragging about soccer, Jesus. Um, <laughs> no, but and the, but and there is nothing in tennis that like I don't think casual fans, casual sports fans would look at women's tennis on TV and notice anything you know lacking. You know, there's not that's like, and yeah. I think that's just maybe that's some luck on the part of tennis or a design plus. There's not there's like there's no dunking equivalent I can think of that men can do that women can't do. Maybe like serving 140 miles per hour, but in actuality. It doesn't really matter much when you're watching a match and it doesn't feel like, oh, my gosh, I'm missing aces. I, I don't think people really crave aces all that much. And in yeah, the other sports, it does matter. I mean, like in WNBA, it's a very different game. It's a it's a game played on, the you know, with feet on the ground and passing and a lot more arcing shots and things like that. And women's soccer is a lot more bunched together generally than the men's. They don't spread the field quite as much, um, which is maybe not as big a difference as the no dunking. Women's hockey, it's very different looking. That's probably the up sports. Like, I think that's just kind of a on. I don't know. If, I don't. I don't know what it is with hockey, but for me, that's the one where I watch it. And I'm like, this is not. To, I feel like the word inferior is a harsh word to use, but it's just like a different, well, it's, completely different plane of. It's hard to in hockey when when the rules basically dictate that it's an inferior. The rules are telling you that it's an inferior product. Oh, you can't check. You know, but it's like, not even this, the checking though. It's just like the 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 foot speed and some of the strength or something. I don't know. The shots aren't as good. It just There's a lot of things in hockey that fall way short for whatever reason. Really? More so to you, like, women's hockey to men's hockey than, like, women's tennis to men's tennis? Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, women's hockey. I don't like... – I, I totally agree with you. I just, like, I, I – the things that I hear from people who have made this argument to me time and time again about men's tennis being superior to women's tennis, like, it seems to me, like, when they talk about it, like, the gulf is, like – 
the Grand Canyon. Well, the Gulf is is the Grand Canyon. I mean, let's be. I mean, we don't talk. We don't do this kind of talk on the show very much. But let's be clear. Like Serena would not beat anybody in the main draw of a men's Grand Slam ever. It wouldn't happen. Um, and that's being generous in terms of where I draw that line in some ways. And that's just the physical gap. But it's bigger in other sports. I think. I think in with her level, if she were to go down the chain of you know where she'd be able to be as a as a men's player. It would end earlier for top women's tennis players, I think, than it would in other sports. Definitely hockey. I can't imagine where you know most no, I, no I'm, I'm not hockey talking, players wouldn't. Be. But I'm not talking yeah. again. I'm not talking about skill level. Like, I mean, I am and I'm not. I mean, how do I articulate this? Um, I'm not talking about the golf in terms of like Serena versus like the number 1000 player in the men's game. Like in terms of like, Oh, can Serena beat number 2000? Can she beat 1000? Can she right. beat 500, 100? That is not the golf I'm talking about. I'm talking about the golf in terms of like the product, the, the thing that you see in terms of the, the, sh- the, just the game. No. And I think that it's, and that goes to where it's non inferior. like they're being played on a different plane. And it's but yeah, well, there we go. But then that—that's what I mean. Is that like? Yeah. But going back to the hockey thing, like you see, like the plane is like far more. Like I see it as less relatable. Okay. I see women's hockey is less relatable, relatable to men's hockey than women's tennis to men's tennis. Okay. Yeah. Fair. There you go. That's all. Okay. Ah, I was just curious. No, that's pretty. I mean, that's pretty much it. And then just again, I think I know this. Obviously, women's hockey is a fairly infant sport they just had their very first pro league where women getting paid to play like ever this year this year 2016 so it's got a long way to go catching up and women's tennis has just been established as a sport for longer and you know they talk about the 98 to ratio of uh men's women's coverage i mean on tennis that's not at all the case and they talked on their episode or they were guessing the hosts on this will and kate about the percentage of audience listening to espn radio you know being probably not completely 98 too, but, you know, very scented for men. And I can tell you for, you know, listener feedback we get on this show, when we did our survey, we're like, we like 55, 45 on NCR in terms of gender yeah. split of the audience, which is pretty unique for a sports podcast. I have to think even like and a I, women's sports comp podcast. And I'm, and it's a, a number that I am incredibly proud of um, and, and being able to create. I mean, I wonder so, sometimes a little bit, too, because Ben and I talked about this a little bit offline, having listened to the, the ESPN podcast. I wonder how much of it is also like it feels like when I'm talking to you or when we do our podcast that it's like a safe space for women. I, I don't mean that in like the safe space, like coded term, but just like, yeah. you know you don't talk down to me i don't like back off from you like our opinions are you know split like you know it's pretty equal playing field i never think of it i never think of myself as like having to fight for something like on this podcast and it was a listening to will and kate the tone was very different and i was and it was like a little bit jarring for me to like kind of hear some of the the tone that was coming from him from from him towards her in just their third episode, and and I don't know what they're like, how they got paired up or uh, anything, but it was incredibly patronizing, 
And all of this kind of like, well, if I'm saying I'm mansplaining it, then clearly I'm not mansplaining it because I'm in on the joke. And it's like, no, dude, you still are. Like, you know, like she's and a it, very accomplished sports writer. And he writer. kept saying, like, like I, I know, like to be perfectly blunt, I know who she is. I don't know who he is. And he was being like, wow, you're getting really like worked up about this. Just things that I, as somebody who's hosted 170 like if ben episodes, had ever said that to me. <laughs> Would never. Things would go, yeah, because you guys know I'm probably the one that is far more like, uh, uh, I don't know, like I get a little animated on the show. But if like anybody were to be like, whoa, you know, calm down, like, da, 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 da. it's like, holy crap, dude, like all of sports radio is men yelling at each other. That is literally all of it. Like, watch PTI, what, listen to any local sports radio station. It's just men yelling at each other about sports, and whoever yells about it the most and loudest, like, wins the argument, which is fine. Which is fine. That's how you want to do it. So then now, go, go like, seriously, listen to the podcast and listen to, like, his tone with her. And I'm like, whoa, bro. No, 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 no. Like, she is doing nothing different than what men do every single fucking day on these sports radio shows. And you're calling her out on it? No. I was, like, not having that at all. I, it made me super pissed. Yeah. Okay. So I'm glad that, like, it made me, like, proud of myself. I was like, wow, I would never even come close to that or any and like i think we in tennis are spoiled again on the gender front compared to every other sport like tennis yes. is just so far ahead and it still has issues obviously we talk about them on the show plenty about you know where disparities are there's not equal pay everywhere there's not equal coverage everywhere there's different treatment blah blah, blah. but there's still sexism there's still, still, still of course there is. I mean, you yeah. hear it all the time i mean i hear it where i'm in the press room or i hear it like from players you, it's there but the fact of the matter is whether the men like it or not they have to be around the women if you're a tennis writer you have to be around women yeah whether it's in the press room or you have to be around the 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 the, the wta tennis players uh staff you know like tour staff you know being rep you know being well represented by women you just have to and so it just creates a very different environment which again you know yay diversity that's what's that's the point like the more women you have in the room, the more, you know, minorities you have in the room, all of that, then then the tone changes. And the stories that people pick up on as being interesting stories, that prism changes. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, yeah, so it, I, I don't know, I found the whole discussion, like, super interesting on so many different fronts. I, I really encourage people to, to listen in. I thought Kate was great. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting listen. And, and like Ben said, it's, it's very interesting to hear like how much tennis was brought up in the discussion, specifically Serena. Very surface but, level, granted. Very surface level, but kind of as the ultimate kind of uh, um, example that seemed to eviscerate so many of the arguments against women's sports because there would be callers calling in being like, I don't watch women's sports. And Kate Fagan would be like, so you're telling me that when Serena plays the U S open final, like you don't watch. And they're like, well, yeah, no, I watch that. Yeah. <laughs> Which was like kind of, kind of amusing. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So tennis breaking, being the outlier forever, disrupting the, the bullshit arguments against women's sports. So yay, women's sports, all that. I mean, yeah, we, we obviously talk about this point in the show. We'll talk more about it later. So it's just, and their discussion was kind of all over the place. And maybe it's why ours, ours, our, ours is a little bit here too, but check it out. It's uh interesting listen, a very different listen than CR for sure. We get sort of the flavor, the temperature, I think pretty well of where women's sports still is. In a lot of the in conversation, the yeah, and, and, and I don't, and and I don't think in the state you say that, but I don't think it's better anywhere else. No, precisely right. That's what I was saying. I was I was going to say, you know, that's kind of the tenor within the states, and the t states is far more progressive than I would say any other country when it comes to to women's sports and women's athletics. So, uh, if it's that here, 
it's it's got to be so much worse everywhere else. Pretty much, yeah. So thank you guys very much for listening to this podcast, this episode of No Challenges Remaining. If you want to follow along with us when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. Subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever podcasting app of your choice and get episodes delivered automatically to you. That's pretty cool and convenient and nice. Uh, we recommend that. And if you can leave us reviews on iTunes or whatever other platform, we appreciate those. Those help us out quite a bit. If you have questions for upcoming shows, we'll be in India Wells for our next episodes. And by the way, programming note, next week's episode will not be on Tuesday or Tuesday. It will be later in the week after the draws come out. Uh, we'll have lots of stuff from India Wells for you, but not right away at a normal time. So mark your calendars accordingly. Plan your weeks accordingly. Um, the executive producers of No Challenge Remaining are Francisco Resendez of TennisBalls.com and Tal Woolley. And so now we will do the shout outs for our Kickstarter uh, that we had for the people at the $25 reward. The reward for that was getting a shout out on the show, which we are more than happy to give to people. Uh, it's been more than a month now that the Kickstarter has been over, Corny, but it's still fairly flooring, I think, for us. I think that's accurate. Think that is accurate. And we're still excitedly figuring out what to do with uh, the support you guys gave us, which is awesome. But in the meantime, we will give the shout outs that are due for our $25 backers. These are 20, 99 names. Come, or how many? 99? 99. Yeah. 99 names. 99 names coming at you. Are you ready? We're going to alternate and test a 10. Yep. Buckle up. Here we go. Here we go. Abel, Pollison, Dermid, Catherine Kelleher, John W., Jason Oster, Dr. Susan Mopper, Steph in the U.S., Scott Smallwood, TheStringTheory.net. We also have Million, Brett, Jacqueline, Pooja, Michael O., Tammy M., Lance Noble, James Peeling, Amy Darkey, and Sarah Tavares. Nick Einhorn, Garth Simmons, Mike Cation, Ada, Laura Mekiu, Julian, Ann T., Brian Bolin, John Fisher, Allison again. Young Thorin, Julian, Alia, Just Be Jen, Ian C. at Fohemian on Twitter, Josh, Haley, Roll Tide. That's <laughs> what, uh, what was requested there. Adam Bilcher, Ian Scott from Winnipeg, Bill Simons, editor of Inside Tennis Magazine. Thanks, Bill. Hi, Bill. Kevin Lane, Ben Kay, Bob Walsh, Lori Porter, Dave Gertler, Aisha, Jeremy Nottingham, Beth Crittenden, Sarah Kay, Jonathan Weinbaum. Emily Modak, Elise, uh, Shang Yi, Barbara, Bennett Hip, Vicky, Twitter's Jurassic, uh, spelled J-U-R-A-S-I-C-K. Just wanted to make that clear. Uh, Jay Trepanier, Mike Deneen, and Allen. Matt Mullen, Jen Hirsch, James Decker, Louisa Thomas, Chris Lynn, Nikita, Kaylee Waters, who's an Andy Murray fan from Scotland. It's her full Woo. name. Scott Perry, <laughs> no shout out required, and Mike Yay. Berg. <laughs> Caitlin McGrath, Christine, Brendan, Stephen Brown, Christian Kerr, Kate, Matthew Colwell, Marianne Marquez, Yelena, and Kenya Americana. Lynn, Mary Pope, at Drew Ross, Colette Lewis, Eilish, Dan Murphy, Benjamin, the amazing Allison Russo, Lonnie, at For the Tennis. Caroline Cobb, whose daughter turned her on to the podcast, Greg Rosenthal, Tiffany Epps, Wendy Anderson, Joseph Kacharian, David Murtaugh, Eleanor Adams, Robbie from Louisville, and last but absolutely not least, Lori. Thank you, backers. Thank you, backers.
So thank you to everybody in that wonderfully long list, and we love the list is long. Courtney, you have any rant raves to give to an even longer list of listeners at this point? Uh, I do, and I'll try to keep them very, very brief. Um, the first one is, as anybody who follows me on Twitter knows, I'm currently in the midst of an Alias rewatch, uh, one of my favorite shows of the aughts. And uh, what kicked it off uh, was this amazing, I thought, um, uh, profile slash interview with Jennifer Garner, who is the star of Alias, mm-hmm. playing Sydney Bristow. Um, it was her first exclusive interviews that she's given since um, uh, all the crazy stuff happened with Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck, who uh, basically they had agreed to get a divorce, and then it turned out that he was cheating uh, with the nanny, and it's been really, really messy. And Jennifer Garner has kept a very low profile ever since. But this was her big kind of coming out week in a lot of ways. This uh, cover story from Vanity Fair hit last week. She looked amazing at the Oscars. Um, she and Ben Affleck apparently, like, not hung out, but but uh, saw each other at the Vanity Fair party and kind of just, and it was fine. Um, and things like that. But the actual profile is like the perfect example of, and it depends on your cynicism level, either A, it's either just a celebration of just like how just down to earth and like classy Jennifer Garner is, which she always has been. If anybody's ever followed her career, she's a pretty humble kid from West Virginia and um, just not really a Hollywood type in any way, shape or form. But um, just the way that she handles a lot of the questions about Ben Affleck and stuff like that are just very kind while also not being woe is me and feel sorry for me. It's a very defiant, but not like bitchy interview, which she could, she would have had every right to throw him under the bus. And she never did that. Um, and there's a lot of interesting quotes. So that's one read. The other read is that if you're an incredible cynic, this was a like pitch perfect piece of PR. Oh, I was going to say that she has a movie coming out. <laughs> she does have a movie come out, not a coming out, yeah. not a coincidence at all. And she's obviously in the midst of, of trying to kind of j- jumpstart her career, which she put on hold to to be Ben Affleck's wife uh, and to raise three awesome kids. I love that the oldest kid looks like exactly like her. Violet, also the name of my niece. So obviously, you know, I'm I'm pro Jennifer Garner. Anyways, um. But yeah, uh, look it up. It's on. It's online, and it's just a, a really great read. And the last, the the closing paragraph, uh, and last quote of the entire article is like the definition of a kicker slash mic drop. It's it's fantastic. So definitely look that up. The other thing is, um, I've been listening to audiobooks and like whatever, just kind of like while I'm working sometimes if I'm not watching Alias. And there's this whole series um, on Audible. Uh, which you can buy on Amazon, uh, called the A-List Collection, which are old classics read by celebrities, which sounds like it could be a disaster, and I think some of them probably are. Um, but the one that I've uh, that I've bought that I'm I'm listening to now that I actually really really like is um, Pride and Prejudice as read by Rosamund Pike. Okay. And and just her accent is great, and there's just a there's you know. Every, People know Rosamund Pike. She's starting Gone Girl. Um, she also was in Pride and Prejudice in the Kira Knightley version, I believe, um, playing uh, – did she play Elizabeth Bennet? Maybe. I can't remember. Anyways, um, but she's just got a great cadence and tone um, and reading voice, and it's it's really quite nice. Uh, th- there's other ones. I think Colin Firth reads a book, Anne Hathaway – uh, reads Wizard of Oz. Claire Danes reads Alice in Wonderland. Okay. I think. 
Either no, maybe not Alice. No, Scarlett Johansson reads uh, Alice in Wonderland. Claire Danes reads a Joan Didion. Okay, that book. seems like a more natural fit. Yeah, so there's a lot of different interesting combinations. Like you can get little audio samples to see if like it worked because so much of it is the voice. If the voice doesn't work for you, you're not getting through the book. It doesn't matter how good the book is. Um, so you can listen and and see if you like it. But um, but yeah, it's a cool little uh, little series, and I'm enjoying Rosamund Pike reading Pride and Prejudice, one of my favorite books. So yeah. Tremendous. Um, I have one mini rant and one other sort of mini rant. Uh, I changed my flight out to California for any well, just got a little bit earlier than previously booked and rebooking, like picking a flight on, I think I'm flying American, picking a seat. They have like different price surcharges for every single seat on the airplane. Which airline? American. Oh, okay. Which is not my favorite usually, but just wound up being the one for this trip sure. for whatever reason. And it was like, it's like you can, so basically you have to put a price tag on like your comfort level and assess like, as you're doing it, like, is it worth like $64 for me to have a window seat? Like that's like 20 rows back or just like every, the, the amount of monetization of like comfort. And I understand that it's be, as the pick your own seat model on airplanes has developed that like people are realizing more and more. That's a thing. Like if someone wants to ask to trade seats with you on an airplane, I feel like it's much less, um, much less, much less of a casual thing. What seat you're in than it used to be with price changes with like, you know, economy plus all that stuff. I don't know. I'm just not somebody who ever really splurges on myself for things. So abstractly, I'm like, I would never pay like $60 not to be in a middle seat, even though I might really enjoy not being in a middle seat when I'm actually on there. So it's just making me, you know, put my money where my mouth is or where my butt is on a plane in a way that (laughs) I just don't like doing. So all that just makes me sad and cynical. And I understand they make money from it, but it's just annoying. Um, And the other thing we didn't mention in our Oscar talk, Sam Smith. Oh, my God. Um, and, Courtney, can you explain what Sam Smith did for people who don't know? So Sam Smith uh, sang his terrible James Bond theme song for Spectre uh, and then subsequently was given an Academy Award for Best uh, best Original Song, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, 23-year-old Sam Smith, who I'm going to be honest right now, I don't know anything about this guy, honestly. Um, in fact, I didn't know he was gay until he said it. <laughs> I, that's like literally how little I know about him. But anyways, in his acceptance speech, he um, said that he had read something. He read an interview with Ian McKellen where Ian McKellen said that no openly gay man had ever won an Oscar. And so he was like, yay me. That's not true. Um, and in fact, uh, um, I can't remember the guy's name, but uh, a man has, uh, an openly gay man has won twice in his category. Um, and uh, and then uh, and then afterwards, what was amusing? Dustin Lance Black? Dustin Lance Black, yeah. The guy who wrote Milk. Yeah. So what even amplified the gaffe afterwards is that Dustin Lance Black, who won an Oscar last or just a few years ago for Milk, he was the screenwriter for Milk, uh, the uh, biopic on uh, Harvey Milk. Uh, he tweeted like basically like basically Sam Smith was like texting his fiance, who's Tom Daly, the Olympic mm-hmm. British diver um and like maybe you should like see some of my films if you like and get to know like you know history or whatever anyways it was this whole caddy thing it was amazing it was like one of the most wonderful post-oscar moments uh but sam smith is a dumbass so okay so my read is that sam smith is terrible and okay. and that the uh, this oscar category itself is also terrible first of all let's go to sam smith this song is awful 
I think everything about Sam Smith is, I think his voice is just really annoying. His performance is really bad. Uh, the Lady Gaga performance is really good just because of the staging only. The song itself is not. And people who are up there and everything, the message of all that, Joe Biden being up there, all that was great. But the Oscar, like, this is the weakest part of any EGOT category, I have to think. And I realize there are, like, 200 Grammys and things like that. But the Oscar songs are, like, all never, like, good songs. They yeah, are bullshit. They but, are they are yeah. largely bullshit. Looking back at these winners, like there are a couple um, that are decent, but like these songs never make it on the radio. They're never like hit songs. They're just mediocre. It's the if, it's the sneakiest way to get an Oscar out there is to write a song, and I think they're just so devalued and so crap. And so and the and Skyfall song wasn't bad. It was fine, but like by the Adele canon, it wasn't anything. Well, sure. Uh, oh, Falling but, Slowly, Glenn I'm, Hansard and Marquette Irglova. That was pretty good. Mm-hmm. I like that song. Um, I mean, but how often, lose, but, but, lose Yourself. Okay, Lose Yourself. I'm looking at the list too. Like, Lose Yourself. It's Hard Out Here for a Pimp was not that bad. Um, but, like, the success rate, the batting average of Best Song Oscar, which you think would be, like, a, winning an Oscar of all the Oscar categories. It just has the most consistent mediocrity. The the Smith, the Spectre song is awful. The so many of them are just bad. A lot of years aren't even nominees or whatever. They didn't even perform all of them this year because they're just they were too boring to be on stage or something. I don't know. All By the of- way, I I take back my defense of this category because I was under the impression that Elliot Smith's Miss Misery from Goodwill Hunting had won an Oscar, but no, it got beat out by My Heart Will Go On from Titanic, which further emphasized in 1997, like. All of the things that I wanted to win lost that year to fucking Titanic, which is why to this day I've never seen Titanic. I've never seen I've never seen Titanic either. Really? Let's like not watch Titanic together forever. Let's do that right now. Okay. All right. Cool. And with that, we'll leave you guys here. Talk to you guys late next week from Indian Wells. Bye guys. Ciao ciao. <laughs>